The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 6-10. So we are always confident and know that while we are, we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lily. So this week I realized that we needed to make a a major change with the new church building, and I haven't... I haven't talked with anyone about this yet, but I thought I'd do it right here, right now, publicly. Um, instead of normal landscaping, like trees and bushes and mulch around the building, I want a graveyard. Like, like churches from the past centuries, I want to I put a, a cemetery as close as possible to the church building, preferably between the parking lot and the building, so that we have to walk through it every Sunday. Now, I know this isn't a popular idea. Josh, a, a cemetery doesn't feel very welcoming. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not permitted by the town anymore to do that. But I think it would be good for us to walk through a graveyard each week. Yes, it's not welcoming, but it's sobering. Sure, it doesn't feel happy or triumphant, but it reminds us of what's true. Maybe successful churches don't have cemeteries anymore, but maybe they would be healthier if they did. As Americans, we try to put thoughts of death as far as possible from us, and so the cemeteries are built further and further from the center of town. More people choose cremation so that no one has to see the dead body. The multi-day wake is replaced with a short visitation, even before death. Those who are getting close to death are placed in separate facilities to die out of sight. We don't want to be reminded of death, but death has much to teach us. Learning from death helps us live faithfully. This morning, I want us to walk through the cemetery together and see what we learn. This idea isn't new to me. The Apostle Paul has talked a lot about death in this letter to the church in Corinth. He continues to remind them that Christianity is not all trophies and parties. Do you remember when he began this letter, the first topic he hit was that of affliction? And how affliction is used by God to help us grow in faith and equip us to serve, and help others. Last week, Don reminded us from chapter 4 that we're simply jars of clay, that we carry the death of Jesus with us wherever we go, and that our outer person is being destroyed. Death is a part of life in this world. And if we ignore it, we do so at our own peril. Now, I know that death is not a subject anyone wants to discuss. I, I know people don't buy tickets to hear a sermon on death. I know that. The Apostle Paul knew that. And those super apostles that were, were infiltrating this church with their false teaching know that, that people would rather hear uplifting and encouraging sermons. Like, why do you have to be so morbid, Paul? But if we're going to learn to live faithfully, we have to learn from death. The writer of Ecclesiastes said it like this. He said, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, since 
That is the end of all mankind. And the living should take it to heart. So this morning, we're going to go together to the house of mourning. We're taking a trip to the cemetery. And we're going to learn a couple lessons about death. Here's the first one. Death is inevitable, but not final. Look at verse 1. It says, For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we are clothed we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. You know, if you walk through the graveyard, what you notice, what you discover, is that everyone there is equally dead. So the the person that has the big fancy ornate tombstone and the person with the little wooden cross both in the dust, their bodies laid to rest, themselves turning into dust. Every generation ends up beneath the soil, rich and poor, male and female, black and white, young and old, educated and uneducated, boss and employee. Everyone shares the same fate. We all die. You know, sometimes when a, a child falls and skins their knee, uh, parents, usually dads, in an attempt to comfort him will say something like, son, you'll be okay. You're not dying. Wrong, dad. He is dying. Now, he's probably not dying from the skinned knee, but he's dying because right now, at this moment, as you sit in this auditorium, you are dying. Now, we may try to ignore it, Like we take a lot of ibuprofen to mute the aching limbs. But we're all dying, young and old alike. Let me say this to you, our students. It's, It's hard for you to feel this right now. It's hard for you to believe this, but you too are dying. And whether you live for another 80 or 90 years, your body is already starting to wear out. Twice in these verses, the Apostle Paul says, we groan in this tent. Or this body. We groan when we get sick and we groan as we get older. I mean, just listen to a a former athlete in their 40s try to get up from a chair after they've been sitting for a little while. Right? Not only will you hear all the joints pop, but you'll usually hear them grunt and groan. In fact, just a little while, you're going to stand back up. So listen to the people around you groan as they get up from their chairs. Like we are slowly succumbing to the effects of time. I've heard sports commentators talk about an older professional athlete and say this, Father, time is undefeated. Even the greatest athletes grow old and die. On Tuesday morning, I went to the senior men's breakfast study at Bojangles. I'm not part of that group, but I'm allowed to show up if I want. just want to clarify that. When I sat down at the table, I looked at my receipt and I had been given the senior discount. <laughs> like That's never happened to me before, and I'm quite certain it was due to the group I was with. In fact, I actually was considering, is it possible to go back up there and return the discount? I would like to pay 70 cents more for this breakfast. I am not a senior. See, in this passage, our bodies are called tents. Paul, the human author was a tent maker, and he stayed employed because tents wear out. And so do we. Our bodies are not made of granite. 
but canvas. The sun bakes our skin and it becomes leathery and worn. Cold and wind, wind pierce us in ways it didn't when we were younger and newer. The toil of getting up and down wears us out and we begin to fray like the ropes that hold a tent in place. Like we don't last forever, death is inevitable. Our bodies are both blessings and burdens. They are part of who we are. And when God made the first humans, he looks at them and he says, you are good. You are very good. Perfect in body and soul. But then humanity rebels against God, falls into sin. And now verse 4 tells us our bodies have become burdens. We're burdened by this weak body. This is why we worry about why we feel the way we feel. Like what's, what's going on? Why do I feel like this? Then we grow discouraged and despondent because of how we look. Our good bodies are broken. When I was in college, I had a conversation with my dad about supplements that a lot of the football players were taking. So my brother and I were considering taking some to help us bulk up for the next season. And my dad warned us about them. And he said, listen, at some point, gravity will take effect. And all that muscle mass will start to sag. Whoever takes the supplements will spend the rest of their lives trying to work them off. I've seen a lot of those guys on Facebook. He was not wrong. (laughs) Gravity punishes our tents. We're all wearing out. Death is inevitable. Do you see it? You need to look at it. And recognize, like, don't, don't bury your head in the sand. Don't pretend it won't happen to you. Death is coming, but it's not final. See, this lesson is not hopeless. In fact, for the Christian, this is filled with tremendous hope. We, we need to face the fact that death is inevitable, but we find reasons for hope and confidence. And so the first reason we have hope in the face of death is because after death, we receive new bodies. We receive new bodies. The Apostle Paul calls our bodies tents three times in these verses. And he wants us to think about the most famous tent in Israel's history. It was called the tabernacle. This was the place where they went to worship God. This tent was was beautifully constructed. You can read about it in the first five books of the Bible. All the meticulous details and preparation that made for this beautiful tent. And it was deliberately maintained, but it was not permanent. It eventually gave way to something better, more permanent, the temple in Jerusalem. And in the same way, our current bodies will give way to new, better, more permanent bodies. Verse 1 says that God has prepared for us. And like the temple, we will always be in the presence of God. Now, now Paul, be careful here, Paul's not saying that our bodies are bad. He doesn't agree with the philosophy that matter is evil. And so we, we seek release from anything physical. The goal, he says here, is it's not to be without a body. He calls it being naked in verse 3. When, when we die, we don't dissolve into an energy that joins a cosmic life force. We're made body and soul. What we want is a body that fits us for all eternity. We want to be clothed, verse 4, with immortality. I don't know about you, but whenever I go on a trip... I think about what clothes to bring. I'll be honest, I don't think about it for very long, but I do think about it. 
And so what I usually do is I pull up the weather app on my phone. Say, well, what's the weather like, going to be like in the, the place I'm going? The other thing I do is I count how many days I'll be gone so I don't run out of clean socks. The whole reason is I, I want to be dressed appropriately. You know, maybe you do that. You get invited to a Christmas party and you're like, what am I supposed to wear? I want to, I want to dress appropriately. See, as our bodies grow and break down, we long to be dressed in a body that doesn't ache. As our bodies grow weaker, we long for a strong body that can make it throughout the day. See, God has given us a desire to be clothed in life and immortality. Deep down, we each long for return to the Garden of Eden before sin and suffering entered the world, before the earth was swallowed up in death. And so we have this haunting ache felt in our bones that we were made for something more. That we are not as fully human as we should be. In some ways, sin has robbed us of our humanity and we have become more and more beastly. We devour each other like animals. And what God promises here is a return to the undiminished joy and unhampered humanity of life before sin. Verse 4, our mortality will be swallowed up by life. This is what we were made for. And this is a reason for us to hope in the face of death. He gives us a second reason. After death, we will be with Jesus. We will be with Jesus. Look at verse 6. So we are always confident and know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not sight. In fact, we are confident. And we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul's not saying we long for death. Paul's not suicidal. But he wants to be with Jesus more than anything. And the fact that upon death we enter the presence of Jesus disarms the power of death. We can face life and death with confidence. Twice he says that. We are confident. We can face life and we can face death both with confidence because we know what's waiting on the other side. We know that our faith becomes sight. It becomes real and touchable. Currently, we're like Abraham. We're wandering through the desert like a nomad sleeping in a tent, and we're just longing for the land God has promised. And one day, when our tent is taken down for the final time, we will be established in our permanent home in the presence of Jesus. See, the reality of death as we walk through the cemetery and we see gravestone after gravestone and we're confronted with our own mortality, this tells us, Christian, oh, hey, you're not home yet. Don't forget this. You're not home yet. We must live by faith because our human sight is growing fainter and dimmer. We will not truly see until we close our eyes for the final time. So though death is inevitable, it's not final. After death, we receive new bodies and we will be with Jesus. And this is guaranteed Look at verse 5. It says, Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as down payment. So as Christians, we have confidence that, that this is our future because this plan does not rest on us. 
This plan doesn't rest on our abilities or our choices that God has prepared for each one of us eternal bodies in the presence of Jesus. This was his purpose when God called you Christian out of darkness into his glorious light. When Jesus suffered and died on the cross, it was for this reason to guarantee your future. And then God gives us a down payment of that future in the form of his spirit who dwells in us. The spirit in us is a glimmer of the glory that's still to come. So let me just say this. Whenever you, as a Christian, understand that you are doing something that does not come from yourself. So, so you, you, you're tempted to say that thing and, and, and by God's grace you resist. When someone's acting that way and you respond in mercy, when you forgive, even though you don't feel like forgiving, when you face temptation and you find strength to say no, all of these things that you know don't come from you, they're the spirit in you. And they're testifying to the fact that what you experience in that moment in some small way will be yours, undiminished in glory forever and ever. Twice he talks about confidence. And this is a confidence in life and it's a confidence in death. And where does this confidence come from? Well, it comes from knowing our Father and trusting what He says. Now, when I was a kid, I'm, I'm confident this is true, that there was never once in my growing up years that I looked at my mom and said, Mom, will there be dinner tonight? But there was a thousand times when I looked at her and said, Mom, what are we eating for dinner tonight? In fact, there were probably some days when I asked that question thousands of times. Because there, there was never a question in my mind that she would feed us. Of course she would. Of course she would. I never worried about my dinner because I had parents that loved me. And I had parents who would take something for dinner. But if you have loving parents who care for you, you never ask that question. You never even think about that. And as Christians, we don't worry about the future. We don't even worry about death. Because we know that our Father will take care of us. That he has promised us, in fact, we just sang it, and it's in chapter 4, he has promised us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. And then here in verse 4, he promises that we will be clothed in immortality. And then he guaranteed that promise by sending his spirit to live inside of us. So the first lesson from the cemetery is that death is inevitable, but it's not final. Here's the second lesson. Death is clarifying for our priorities. Because death is inevitable and because there's something after death, this should bring clarity to what we prioritize. Will we live for what lasts or will we live for things that die alongside us? Will we spend our lives trying to gain things that wear out or spend our lives on things that matter? We see the clarifying nature of death in the next couple of verses. Look at verse 9. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So let's ask two questions as we evaluate our priorities. First, will we seek to please God or ourselves? See, Paul says here, my aim 
is to please God, whether it's in living or it's in dying. What's the opposite of pleasing God? Well, it's pleasing ourselves. Or verse 15 calls it living for ourselves. Pleasing God or pleasing self. Will you spend your life decorating your tent and adding as many luxuries as possible? Or will you pour out your life for others in the service of Jesus Christ? Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you know this is true. Like, I am not into camping. No interest. My mortgage payment remains the same whether or not I sleep in a tent, and so I choose not to sleep in a tent. But what I understand less than camping is glamping. That's glamorous camping. That's when you take all of your high-end electronics, all of your luxuries out into the woods for a camping trip. So you try to go camping and make it as much like normal life as possible. That seems like a waste of time and money. Just stay at home with those things. Living to please yourself is the spiritual equivalent of glamping. Life is short. Your body is wearing out. Eternity awaits. So why would you waste your life trying to make yourself happy with amusements and pampering yourself with comforts? Why would you be so caught up in making your tent cozy and beautiful when it's going to wear out? When we die, we will stand before the Lord, and what we spend our life on will either last or it'll burn up. In an earlier letter to this church, Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, For no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So when you stand before Jesus, what you spent your time, your money, and your energy on will either burn up or it will hold up. What burns up? Cars and careers? Vacations and valuables, good looks and gourmet meals, right? All of those gone, ashes. Well, alas, this is the point that Paul has been making for the last four chapters. The trophies of grace that will withstand the fire of God's judgment are people. Will you give your life trying to gain junk? Or will you lay your life down for the good of others? The way to please God is to serve others instead of yourself. At the end of your life, when you look back on what you accomplished, will you see a steady progression of nicer cars and houses? Will you see more and more exotic trips, another promotion at work, a a living room that looks like a magazine cover, a a comfortable, stress-free retirement? Well, none of those things are wrong. All of them turn to ashes. And so, live for something That outlasts you. What can you take with you to heaven? Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, right? There's no U-Haul on the hearse. And the point is that 
There's a lot of things you can't take. You can't take riches to heaven. You can't take your reputation to heaven. But there is one thing you get to take to heaven, and that's other people. Christian, I don't think the inclusion of the judgment seat here is meant to scare us or shame us because all of our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Paul is motivating us to spend our lives on what really matters, to pour out our lives for the benefit of others so that one day we can stand with them before the Lord and we can praise him for the grace that is evident both in our lives and theirs. What are the trophies that decorate your mantle? Are they trophies of earthly success and achievement? Or are they trophies of transformed lives? See, death clarifies our priorities by causing us to ask, will we seek to please God or will we seek to please ourselves? Second question, will we seek to persuade people or impress them? Will we seek to persuade people or impress them? The fear of the Lord, which is mentioned here. The fear of the Lord is not terror or horror, But it's a sense of awe at the power and majesty and authority of the God who will judge all people and the God who reigns over all things. And this fear of the Lord is what motivates Paul to spend his life trying to persuade people of the truth of the gospel. The only standard that matters to Paul is what God says. Look at verse 11. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. The fear of God frees us from the fear of people. This is what Paul is saying here. He says, I know that God sees me perfectly. Verse 11, who I am is plain to God. God sees everything about me. He sees from the tips of my toes to my fingertips to the hair on my head. He knows every thought I've had. He knows every action. He knows every desire. Who I am is completely open to him. He sees it all. He sees it accurately. And because of that, I don't worry about how others see me. Paul here is not searching for people to pat him on the back or to commend him or to build his reputation. His goal is not outward appearances. When Paul compares the opinion of people to the opinion of God, the opinion of people no longer matters. If you're a lion tamer, you don't freak out when a kitten enters the room. If you're a race car driver, you don't get nervous driving a golf cart. If you're Michelangelo, you don't get intimidated by a container of Play-Doh. If you understand that you will one day stand before the righteous judge of the universe and he will be pleased with you, you will stand before the righteous judge judge of the universe, and because of Jesus Christ, he will be pleased with you. 
and the opinions of mere mortals no longer have power over you. Brothers and sisters, all of us are tempted to take pride in ourselves and what we can accomplish. And this is, this is just a natural, human, selfish, sinful desire to say, look at what I've done. Let me just tell you, that's a waste because it burns up. Doesn't matter how many five-star reviews you get on your life from other people, they become ashes. He says there's something we can take pride in. Verse 11, we can take pride in transformed hearts and redeemed lives. Because when we do that, we're not boasting in our own efforts, but we're boasting in the good work of God in other people. Right? Then we're boasting ultimately in God. This is how we use the language. We're not actually taking pride then in ourselves. We're taking pride. We're boasting in the good work of God in other people. That lasts. All this other garbage burns up. See, the Apostle Paul simply does not care what other people say about him. Some call him crazy. Verse 13, some people, he says, say, I'm out of my mind, fine. But I'm crazy for God's sake. And my craziness is what God used to bring the gospel to you and transform your lives. Because Paul doesn't need their approval, he is free to love them. I think this is key. I want you to think about this for a moment. Because he doesn't need their approval, he's free to love them. Because if he needs their approval, then he has to manipulate things to keep or gain their approval. And he no longer loves them. He no longer serves them. He no longer does what's best for them. He just uses them for what they can give him. The love of Christ for Paul and this church is what motivates all that Paul does. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Love is a powerful motivation. I mean, think of what people do because of love. Love causes young men to act like fools. If they think it will impress that girl. Love of country sends soldiers to war and love of family brings them home. What is more motivating? What is more powerful than love? It was love that took Jesus to the cross. Right? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. It was because of love that Jesus died for us. Love took him to the grave and because of love he rose from the dead. And now we who've been brought to life by faith in him, we follow his example of love for others. We don't live for ourselves. I mean, if there's any description of what the Christian life should be, it's this, we don't live for ourselves. We don't live for our name. We don't live for our reputation. We don't live for our successes. We live for him. And the outworking of Jesus' love for us and our love for others is that we will plead with them to accept the free gift of salvation that only comes through him. 
Friend, the sermon this morning has been focused on Christians and what awaits Christians after death. And I want to speak to you for just a moment about what happens to the person who stands before Jesus as judge but has not been found in him, knowing him, having received his gift of salvation. And so, friend, I want to take a moment. I want to plead with you this morning that you will die And after you die, you will stand before the holy and just God of heaven. And no good works you do will absolve you of your sin. He will find you guilty and he will sentence you to eternal judgment. But Jesus stood in your place. So that you could be forgiven and your record could be wiped clean. And so this morning I plead with you to turn from your sin and rebellion, confess your inability to justify yourself in God's sight, and receive the gift of pardon and restoration through Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if we live for the approval of others, we will not plead with people to repent of their sin and be saved. Fear of people. And fear of their opinions only brings silence. A desperate need for their acceptance will cause us to avoid difficult topics. We will say what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Is there a person right now that you know you need to be lovingly pleading with? Are you avoiding it out of fear they might reject you? when we understand that we are forever secure in the loving arms of Jesus, only then will we find courage to speak up. See, death has a lot to teach us. The cemetery preaches a powerful sermon. It reminds us that life is a vapor here and gone, like a summer thunderstorm, often without warning. But death is not the end. On the other side of death is life with Christ in a new creation with permanent, fully human bodies. And so the brevity of life, the certainty of judgment, and the security we find in Christ should clarify our priorities. We seek to please God, not ourselves. We seek to persuade people, not impress them. And for the Christian, a walk through the cemetery reminds us that there is one grave that lies empty, right? There is one grave that is not like the others. There's only one grave that opened from the inside out. And the reason that we're able to gather here this morning and think about death and sing about death and do so without fear, actually wanting to learn from death is because Jesus defeated death and rose from the grave. And because of Jesus, the house of mourning has become a house of feasting. Death leads to life. Weakness leads to strength. Failure leads to victory. The wise listen, and they take these lessons to heart. Join me in asking God for help to take these lessons to heart this week. Father, I know my own temptation to ignore these weighty things. I'm going to go home and eat some food and maybe rest for a little bit and get busy with other things and before I know it, death will be put off, 
pushed away and these lessons will be forgotten. So I really need your help, Lord. And I pray on behalf of my brothers and sisters here, I pray for them too. Lord, help us to think about these weighty and real things so that it changes what we hope for and how we live. Lord, we are pilgrims in a land that is foreign to us. And the heartbeat of this land is to ignore death, pretend it won't come, or busy ourselves with so many things that we don't have to think about it. Lord, we we are called to be different. We are called to look for a city whose builder and maker is God. To recognize that we are here for a short time, that these tents we live in are wearing out, but there is a far greater weight of glory prepared for us, and that motivates what we do. So, Father, I pray that you help us. Help us to have our priorities molded and shaped by your word. Lord, I pray for anyone sitting here who simply does not know you, who is still in their sin instead of in Christ. I pray that they will face the reality of standing before you and having nothing to offer, nothing to cover their sin. And I pray that they will understand what Jesus has done and will receive him today as their Savior. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquaverina, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.